Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. I'm Tim Grady, and we're glad you're with Manufacturing Talk Radio today. We've got a lot of exciting things going on. But before we get to introducing who our guest is going to be, and we've got a couple of uh, interesting announcements, I'd like to chat with my co-host up in New Jersey as I am uh, in a southern region Atlanta broadcasting studio. Find out what's going on in New Jersey and what happened last week and next week with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Lou, how are you doing today? Uh, good, good. A little waterlogged. We've had really a super, super wet season, which uh, that's good because I, I didn't have to water every night. Um, but other than that, everything's just going along just chipper. Uh, last week, our postscript, uh, Tim Fiore, the chair of uh, Institute of Supply Management Business Survey Committee, uh, came out with the PMI number of 56.3, which came down a little bit from the month before, not much, nothing to get panicked over, uh, especially going into the August month. We also had uh, Chris Keel, the FMA economist, the Manufacturing Talk Radio humorist, uh, the Armada Corporate Intelligence uh, Company that he also represents to discuss the Credit Managers Index. And uh, very interesting stuff. Um, he's a little bit in conflict uh, between them and ISM, but uh, you're going to have to listen to the show and see where the differences lie. All in all, it was a terrific uh, report, and uh, I'm not going to go through all the numbers. You can go back to our website and listen to that show on August 1st. Um, as far as our moving forward here, we have for next week, we have uh, uh, Chad Moutre from the National Association of Manufacturing. He's the chief economist. We have Roy Slow reporting on the UK and France in particular. Chang Wang reporting from China. He's our uh, senior international uh, correspondent. And we have Robert Orr from Strategis with their PMI Global Report where they report on 18 different uh, international companies. So it's a lot of numbers, but it sure is giving a lot of uh, good information about what's happening globally in spite of what's happening in Washington. I'm not sure how much that's going to hold out or how long that will hold out, but <laughs> nonetheless. A uh, couple of news items. Uh, one is a rather serious uh, issue, which uh, – uh, I think Tim and I are going to be doing a show on it uh, coming up shortly, and it's called uh, Drugs and Manufacturing, the Workplace, and how it's being infiltrated with marijuana opioids. And um, we are beginning to hear, even in mainstream media, about the problem that manufacturing uh, companies are having. Not only do they have a problem getting people in the first place because there aren't enough people that are qualified. So, and there are plenty of jobs in case one would believe that there are no jobs. Um, there's a company in Ohio that uh, uh, we've uh, interacted with and spoken to. Uh, out of 10 applicants, four of them failed the drug test. Four. 
and then another three or four couldn't pass uh, the skills requirements. So all in all, we have a real serious problem. We also have a decreasing uh, workforce. Uh, the baby boomers are either retiring or dying or moving to Florida. And uh, the lower, that lowers the availability of workers. And then, of course, uh, we have the immigration issue, which uh, I don't mean to really get onto this whole political bandwagon, but if we cut down on Im- immigrants, we're going to have a bigger problem in regards to availability of workers. But all in all, the drug situation has really gotten out of hand, um, and uh, this is something that uh, I think that not only Washington, but I think, again, to get this, get anything done in the states, you got to get the states to do it. Uh, you can't count on the feds. And that's a sad, sad commentary, but that's the fact. We'll notify you all when we are going to be doing a show, Drugs in Manufacturing Workplace, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll be working on that, and we'll let you know when we're going to do it. Um, and by the way, there is a solution, but I'm going to hold off until we do the show. Um, next, uh, we have uh, some... Uh, Other stories here that um, uh, we'd like to share with you. Uh, It seems as though that uh, uh, there seems to be a lot of uh, Republican and Democratic uh, support to stop Scott Garrett, Republican of New Jersey, former congressman, to head the XM Bank in uh, in, uh, Georgia, I believe it is. And uh, the problem with him is that he's always been anti-XM Bank, and now the Trump administration wants to make him the head of XM Bank. It's uh, typical, and it's consistent with what's been going on in Washington, um, but there is a lot of people coming out against it, including uh, NAM, National Association of Manufacturers. They're not real in favor of this as well. Uh, Tim, it's really been a it's it's really been a hot news week. I could go on here for you know days and days <laughs> and hours um, and try and bring up uh, some of these stories and try and get a wiggle room in between what's going on in Washington and what's going on in real life. Uh, but I'm I'm going to take a pass on that and uh, let's get our interviews going. So I'll flip this back to you. Thanks, Lou. Uh, Many of you in manufacturing who listen to the show are in a segment of manufacturing in the logistics area. And you may remember that your purchasing people use some big green books called the Thomas Registers. Well, the Thomas Publishing Company, part of Thomas Net, also has a publication called Inbound Logistics, and we'd like you to hear just a few words from them. Hey, guys, are you bothered by rising transportation costs? Do you worry that your vendors and suppliers are also in the transport brokerage business? Do you sometimes wonder if you've got the right amount of product and supply available to serve your customers and get the job done? Well, if any of this is on your mind, I've got the free resource for you. It's called Inbound Logistics, and it reveals the ways companies just like yours took control of inbound product flow, rationalized transport costs, reduced inventory requirements and touches, all without dinging customer service. Go to InboundLogistics.com, look for the free subscription link, and sign up today. This message was sponsored by Manufacturing Talk Radio and All Metals and Forge Group. 
So that's Inbound Logistics. You can find them at InboundLogistics.com. And now let's get to our guest. Welcome, everyone, to this segment of Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're pleased to be with Barbara Troutline. She is the author of a best-selling book, Change Intelligence, Use the Power of CQ to Lead Change That Sticks. She happens to be the founder and principal of Change Catalyst. And I'm very interested to talk to Barbara, as I know my co-host Lou Weiss is, because change is one of the greatest resistance factors in business and manufacturing worldwide. Barbara, welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Well, we're, we're fascinated. Uh, how did you get into the change, uh, the change field, Barbara, and working with change intelligence? That's a great question. Well, it all started almost three decades ago now which for those of us that are manufacturing industry veterans may recall uh, the United States was going through a very challenging economic time in the mid-80s. And I was living and working in the Midwest uh, near Detroit, and we were known as the Rust Belt at that time. Right. So I was, yes, I was part of a consulting team that was working with organizations that were struggling to survive in those economic times. When my first client actually was a steel mill that was in bankruptcy. And so how I got started was working with this consulting team in the steel mill to help them reemerge from bankruptcy and become solvent again. So it, I started off my first day on the job, and uh, there I am. I'm 25 years old, and I'm in a room full of all men. They're all steel workers. Pretty much all of them had worked in this same mill for almost their entire careers and they were all 20 or 30 or 40 years older than me and I get up and I introduce myself about how we're going to transform them to total <laughs> yeah, good luck self-managed teams yes you can just paint the picture right? right and um so I'm up there sitting up there talking going on and on and all of a sudden from the back of the room a gentleman stands up He's six foot five and she's 250 pounds and he stomps right to the middle of the room right in front of me and says, we're steel workers and we don't listen to girls. (laughs) 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 So that was literally my first day on the job. And so, you know, you can imagine why did he do that? As you said, there's so much resistance to this whole idea of change and there's so much fear. And I knew that there was fear in the room. Um, you know, I had a lot of empathy for the steel workers. It was the only game in town. It was the only job most of them knew, and it was already in bankruptcy. They were seeing automotive facilities, other you know, plants, shutting their doors every day, and they desperately didn't want it to happen. So I knew that there was a lot of fear in the targets of change in the room. However, I also knew right from that first day on the job that there was a heck of a lot of fear and intimidation by the quote-unquote change leader who at that time was me standing in front of the room. So that's how I got down this path. Wow, that uh, has to be terribly intimidating. So did you save the steelworkers' bacon at that time? <laughs> um, save their bacon? Well, you know, the, the, it was really a very, um, you know, exciting, um, uh, you know, challenging uh, engagement, as you can imagine. But we did partner together for two years myself and the Union Management Steering Committee, and we actually worked with all 850 
people in the mill, and they did emerge from bankruptcy. So it was a success story. So that was uh, that was very exciting to very exciting to see. And and uh, and to your point, it was uh, you know first time I really cut my teeth on uh, all the changes that you know we do need to make in in those difficult economic times and the current economic challenges to to survive and, and to thrive. Uh, Barbara, uh, of course, they were also afraid of the little girl uh, in the room. So <laughs> yes, that, uh, that's right. <laughs> and it was even better than that because the union district rep at uh, one of the breaks went up to my mentor and said, you know, we have child labor laws in the state because I was 25, <laughs> but I looked like I was 16. So, <laughs> 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 so it keeps getting better. <laughs> uh, and that was actually my jokes about myself at that time is that you know we had talked if you remember back in the day a lot about paradigm changes right paradigm shifts and and i used to joke right. that just by walking in the room i was a paradigm shift <laughs> for <a lot> of <laughs> it would have been right, right. Well, yeah. well i don't i don't think that same situation exists anymore to the same extent uh, uh matter of fact uh, just uh, put in a plug for us uh, we have a new radio show that's starting in September called Women and Manufacturing, and it's going to be a show all about women and manufacturing. So there is a significant paradigm shift in, in regards to Oh, absolutely. To I, you're absolutely right. Um, now when I go into um, you know steel mills, refineries, auto plants, any kind of manufacturing um, facility, I definitely am um, rarely the only woman in the room and it's strange to transform from that you know very green young woman to the sage old lady <laughs> in the room so so i think that that's a that's a great service that they're providing it's uh um uh you know when we talk about change definitely not only the um you know all kinds of diversity and uh the changes in the workforce and new generations and so it's uh um definitely i think that the, that that's something that shifted over the course of my career so let me let me start off with a, a statement of fact uh, with regards to my primary business, which is All Metals and Forge Group, which is a manufacturer of steel forgings. Uh, and, in, and in 1994, uh, we uh, instituted the ISO, the International Standards Organization, the ISO 9001 program within our company. And uh, if you want to talk about a major change to a corporation, ISO is it. And you get, you get a lot of pushback on everything from everything to everything. They didn't like anything. They didn't want anything until this whole system was put into place after about six months of uh, preparing for it. And the very first day that we got our certificate. It happened that a customer called our sales department and said, listen, I'm in real serious trouble. I need to buy XYZ, but I can only buy it from an ISO 9000 company. And this was in 1994. And he said, I can't find one. And our salesperson said, well, we are one. And that was the first order. It was a $50,000 order from Wisconsin. And that immediately changed every all the salespeople's attitudes in one event. That being said, that that benefit has worn off, and it's always a fight about 
the things that we need to do within our company to maintain a very strict quality program. So why don't, why don't you tell us about some of your stories and the hows and whys and how you manage to uh, deal with uh, the teams and employees and executives and so on. By the way, Tim, Absolutely. stop breathing so hard. <laughs> that, that's a great example uh, and a great story. And I think that that's typical of some dynamics that maybe you might resonate with in your audience that uh, what I see a lot is that the folks at the top of the organization, whether it's the plant management team or the C-suite, whatever the top level that we're talking about, is that they are the most bought in to the need for change, whether it's ISO, whether it's, you know, again, any kind of new quality system or new manufacturing process or merger acquisition, whatever it is. They have been thinking about it the longest. Um, planning for it the longest, and they have access to different types of information that typically isn't always available throughout the rest of the organization. So they see what's happening in the industry, in the competitive environment, what their customers are requesting. And so that's what we typically see. However, what we also typically see is that the folks at the top of the organization, while they're the most understanding and bought in needs to change, can be somewhat isolated from the perception and the impact throughout the organization. Sometimes I talk about that, uh, you know, the TV show Undercover Boss, right? You know, right. Uh, why is that? Right. Why is that show so popular? Because um, a well-intentioned, well-meaning CEO masquerades as a frontline employee for a week or two and really sees how hard it is for good people to move forward with some of these things that the organization needs to do. And one CEO told me once, he said, you know, Barbara, it's like we're all monkeys in a tree. We're all monkeys in a tree, and I'm the top monkey, and I look down and I see the smiling faces of the monkeys below me. <laughs> and they look up, and what do they see? And he patted his bottom. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we know that the higher up you go in an organization, the more difficult it is to get any kind of feedback, any feedback at all, let alone real-time, actionable feedback about what's going on throughout the organization. So what your example points to, I think, is that all of, so I'm sure that there was, you know, a lot of communication around why we need to go to ISO, how it's going to work, what the benefits are going to be. Um, however, until your people really saw, had access to the same information, um, basically about how this was going to help you in the marketplace, right? Um, and had those opinion leaders, those sales professionals really be able to support that and validate that from that direct external customer feedback, it was a hard sell. It was a hard message to get through. Um, and so that's what I often talk about in terms of, um, you know, working with, the, you know, the, the plant managers, the C-suite, is that how can we help what you see depends on where you sit. Right. So how can we help people throughout the organization see what we see, right, see what we need to do to, um, you know, to change, to improve, to remain competitive and give people access to that information? What so often looks like resistance in other people, um, you know, the, the front lines are often, you know, seeming like they're the most resistant because they're the ones whose behavior has to change the most. They're the ones who, you know, have to, you know, participate in designing this new system, system, uh, system implementing it, using it, 
um, and they can sometimes not, you know, understand the rationale for it. And sometimes we communicate in a very one-size-fits-all manner from the top to bottom, and we need to really customize our communications, make real in the field, as I say to people. Um, so that's one reason that I, I really love their examples. It really demonstrates how what you see depends on where you sit and how we, if we can all get on the same page and have the same information, a lot of times, you know, smart people will, will see things very similarly. So that's one layer to that onion. So let's make believe I'm a manufacturer, <laughs> which I am. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I, have the, I have these problems. I have uh, people who want to do it, do something their way. They're, they're, they've been doing it for decades. And now you come in with this idea to improve your company and you sat down and you talked to your people and, you know, you get a lot of negativity. I would say that you get more negativity than uh, uh, positive uh, input. So how would Barbara handle this, right? I came to, I find you and uh, the company Change Catalyst, and I want to, I want to bring you into this. How do you handle this? How do you start off with a particular uh uh, set of uh, circumstances within a particular company, whether it's large or small. I gather that you do do a lot of large companies. Do you do small or medium-sized companies as well? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, any size organization, uh, you know, as we know, everyone uh, throughout industries, all different, globally, um, locally, we're all dealing with all kinds of different changes, so a variety okay. of sizes of organizations. So okay. she, well, first I'll sit back and I'll um, – uh, maybe make a big picture comment, and then I'll answer your specific question about the how. One thing I would say that I've um, really seen has been very empowering information for the clients that I work with is that there's some really interesting new knowledge that we have only in the last decade that I didn't have when we started out in my career 30 years ago. There's been a lot of interesting research in neuroscience. So real basic science when, you know, neuroscience researchers, brain researchers put electrodes on people's brains and see what happens. (laughs) And so one thing we know now is that when we encounter a change, literally the same neuroreceptors go off in our brain as when we encounter pain, when we encounter physical pain. So I think that's really fascinating in a very real sense, a physiological level, to the brain change equals pain. And so one thing that I always tell the leaders that I work with, and I talk about leaders at all levels, whether you're the manufacturing manager, whether you're a superintendent, whether you're a frontline foreman, right, um, is, is that it's normal and natural to resist change. Um, even change-friendly amongst us, um, that will happen. We might get over it quicker, right? You know, we might, you know, feel more excited than in pain quicker. Um, however, that is a normal and natural human reaction. And so much of what's written about about change is all about overcoming resistance to change. And I think the sense is a lot that this is bad and wrong. And it, and, and I think so often that the leaders I work with, they have the best intentions. They know that the organization needs to make these changes, right? They have the best incentives. However, they encounter what looks like resistance in others, and it starts feeling like they're doing something to or against or even in spite of other people instead of with and for them, right? That's what it starts to feel like. So one of the things that, you know, my uh, uh, biggest thing I do with clients is really to help them 
how can we kind of transform this, you know, dynamic of overcoming resistance to change, right, which is a normal and natural human reaction that we should expect to looking at what looks like resistance as a source of information that we as leaders can use. So reframing what looks like resistance in other people from our enemy to our ally. So that's just a big picture kind of thought process, right, kind of a, a mind shift, let's say, that I think is really, really useful for people to consider that resistance isn't bad and wrong. It's not something that we can prevent or, we, or, we, you know, or we're doing something wrong if we get it. It's normal and natural, so the idea is how can we use it as information, right? So um, what I do when I first go into an organization is that I talk to them about how can we be more intelligent about our changes. Uh, you know, my idea is that just like we know our IQ, our intellectual intelligence, right, IQ, intellectual quotient, a lot of us have heard of EQ or emotional intelligence. How can we build for ourselves, our teams, and our whole organization our change intelligence or CQ? And that's all about understanding our style of leading change and be able to adapt it so we can be more effective. So adapt our style of working with our employees, our teams, our, you know, important stakeholders so we can help them, right, overcome what looks like resistance and all be, you know, all be singing off the same sheet of music. So that's the first thing that I do with clients is, help them to understand that, hey, this thing that looks like resistance, it's a good thing, right? You know, the whole idea with that undercover boss analogy, right, is that it's so off, it's so hard to give, you know, uh, to, for folks to get feedback, right, to get feedback of what's going on, but it's that information that we need to overcome what looks like resistance. So, um, so that's a long-winded way of saying that the first thing I typically do with clients is to talk about what does it mean to lead change intelligently, right? And I talk about that what it means is that we need to have a purpose, right? We need to lead from the heart, head, and hand. We need to lead from uh, a place of that people get the change, right? They get the change, they understand the, 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 the vision, the goal, the purpose. Why is a business we need to move in this direction? What is the specific change? That's the head part of it. We need to lead from the vision and the strategy. People need to know how to do it, the hands part of it. They need to know how to, um, what, what their role is, what their part, how to get the training, get the tools to be able to do the change, right? And they need to want it. That's the heart of it. They need to, we need to understand what those emotional sources of resistance are, what's in it for them, what's in it for all of us, overcome people's fears, build on their hopes and concerns. So that's what I do with clients. I help them to be able to say, hey, so often what looks like resistance out there right, is because we as leaders aren't giving people what they need to get it, right, and that's what the salespeople did, right, they got it all of a sudden when that customer called, we need to help them be able to get it, we need to help them be able to want it, right, overcome those emotional, this is the way we've always done it, you know, what, why you have to do it this way, and we need to give them the tools to be able to do it. I think one of the things that you just mentioned uh, about a minute and a half ago was what's in it for me and knowing salespeople for 55 years that I've known them that seems to me to, to me to be one of the primary uh, components of getting anything done within a sales organization 
that it's what's in it for me. If I have to do this, if I have to make these changes, if I have to, if I have to, if I have to, what do I get? So obviously, uh, I mean, it, it happened to me once uh, that I was inspecting a manufacturing plant out west, and uh, he had 400 people, and he adopted ISO. And, and I said to him, you know, and this was in the beginning in the 90s, and I said to him, you know, we had a problem with converting to ISO, and they're a much bigger company. They had four or 500 employees. And I said, so how did you deal with the hardline resistors? He said, I fired them. It's a great <laughs> incentive. And he said, everybody else caught on what's in it for them. Now, I'm not recommending <laughs> that as a style for you to adopt to uh, teach uh, executive teams to, you always have that option to fire people. You can't get people today as it is, so firing them doesn't help. So do you have specific uh, guidelines uh, outlined to convert the naysayers and to uh, have the leaders find a way to get their point across without using threats and uh, 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 you know, the ultimate threat, firing, reduction of pay, to uh, take the day off without pay or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we I always talk about the different power bases that we have available to us as leaders, right? We have different power bases, and those different power bases have different implications, right? So, for example, there's certain power bases that are given to us by virtue of our position in the organization. Because I'm the boss, I have authority, that means do it because I'm the boss and I say so. We can reward people. That's right. That's the carrot. And we can discipline them. That's the stick, which up to and including termination. So those are power bases that are given to us because we're the boss, but by virtue of where we are in the organization. However, there's also other sources of power that are more personal power bases, right, that we develop based on ourselves as individuals. And what the research shows and what my experience has shown is that if we tend to let, and they're all, it's not a good, bad, right, wrong thing, right, because all those will get results. Um, however, they have different implications. So, for example, if we tend to rely on our positional power, right, authority, reward, and discipline, we'll tend to get compliance from others and sometimes even malicious compliance or sometimes even sabotage, right? Um, However, if we rely on more of our personal power bases, and those are, first of all, goodwill, so building rapport and relationships, as I always say that, you know, uh, that relationships get results. Relationships get results. We are always going to have to ask people to do some very difficult things as leaders that they might not want to do, that's uncomfortable, that's new to them, that takes more time, it's more difficult, whatever. And so if we have deposits in our emotional bank accounts with other people, right, It'll really help reach kids to when we have to make those tough asks, right? So that's one, just that people like us, they trust us, we've built goodwill. That's a power base. Another power base is information. Again, as I've said, what you see depends on where you sit. And to your point, with salespeople, uh, with frontline people, I've seen things like, you know, again, customer roadshows, taking them to the customer sites, understanding what the customers are really asking from our organization, um, you know, giving people access to the same information that we have, what's happening in our industry, our competitors, um, you know, again, is a source that, uh, that we 
that we can leverage and expertise. Sometimes people will, you know, um, follow your lead because they appreciate that you are the expert in this area, and therefore they will, um, you know, they will test out, you know, something different. So again, there's definitely things that, um, and, and again, it's not good, bad, right, or wrong. The most effective leaders use all of those sources of power, right? Power bases, and you know, whenever we can use the uh, more the personal power bases it'll tend to result in more commitment, more personal ownership and commitment than, um, than the position of power basis. So that's one take that I would say. The, another take that I would say is that, you know, again, that um, as we know that there's different rates of adoption. Um, there's you know, been interesting research in terms of how you know, people who jump on the bandwagon with the new and different. And there's some people that are very early innovators. They just, you know, they're very um, excited about the new and they want to jump into it. Um, and there's always going to be a certain percent that are the laggers, as we say, that are the, that are the last ones. It tends to be the second wave of people who jump on board, right, um, who tend to start seeing some possibility with the change that you're that's looking at. And if those are some opinion leaders in the organization um, uh, that other people respect and look to, that, again, is another great strategy. If we can get some opinion leaders, we can demonstrate some of our early wins, how this is helping us be more successful, um, and if we can allow folks to participate to some degree, maybe they can't decide the overall direction, right, or the overall decision, uh, but participation leads both to higher quality decisions and to greater ownership. Um, so, if we, so if there's a role that we can give people to play in designing, implementing the new, the new approach, that often is another great strategy to reduce what, again, can look like resistance. Uh, Barbara, I really like uh, the beginning of what you were just saying, and, and I, I appreciate everything you added after that. But I, I think for for a, a sub point or uh, a, a uh, the golden nugget that Tim and I always look for in every show, and you know, I, I think here's uh, yours, and that's how to create change in the corporation: authority, reward, and discipline. Um, I, I think that's the short version of what it is that uh, that you're doing. Am I s sort of correct? Yeah, you know, it's um, I can't take credit for that. That was some uh, early research in my field, which is organizational psychology by French and Raven did some really interesting research and, um, you know, power within organizations. And so this is, you know, some pretty foundational thinking that I've just seen play out time and again. Um, and another foundational, um, you know, um, thought piece in, in my field was um, by a guy named Stephen Kerr, and he wrote an, a, fa a fabulous article called On the Folly of Rewarding A While Hoping for B, and the subtitle is It's the Reward System, Stupid. And it's a wonderful article because it talks about um, how we reward people in all aspects of life, from politicians to sports figures to um, uh, you know, to within organizations and how we want one thing to happen, but when we're really looking at look at it, we're reward people, rewarding people from from a totally different different perspective. And so, oftentimes, what I do also with organizations is I help them create two columns. One is the rhetoric, and one is the reality. <laughs> and I talk about. Um, uh, uh, you know, what we're really saying to people and what we're asking them to do and really what are we rewarding them for and how are our systems and processes setting them up to be successful versus to fail. 
Um, and one one thing that we in our in our good intentions to move forward and implement things, you know, rapidly that we need to do. So often we don't realize that any change has lots of other tentacles, right? You know, ISO, if we're going to move towards that direction, there's a lot of things we need to change in addition to, right, what just looks like laying out the, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the quality control and regulatory processes, right? So sometimes what I see is that people might want it, right? They might want the change. They might get the need for the change. They might get it, right? Um, and sometimes, though, it's people just can't do it. There's barriers, organizational barriers, reward systems, compensation systems, communication systems, operation systems that are standing in the way of good people behaving consistently with the change. So, you know, all human behavior is motivated. <laughs> and, uh, and if we have the environment where we're really looking at the sources of resistance, if we're really talking to people about it, if we're really trying to understand what's standing in people's way, of moving forward, a lot of times we can find those things that we really need to um, uh, to look at to help people behave consistently with the change. You know, it's it's so often what what happens is that we look at something that is like you know looks like resistance in a person, and a lot of times that we know that the biggest percentage of reasons for people's behavior in organizations is not actually individual factors, even though that's what it looks like. Like there's that naysayer, there's that lagger, there's that you know, pain in the butt that never gets with the program. So often, though, we really find systemic barriers, right? It's so, as, as we always say, you put a good person against a bad system, the system is going to work, um, win every time. So doing that exercise, looking at the rhetoric versus reality, looking at what we're asking people to do versus the system that they're embedded in, right, and how that's helping them or not helping them, um, is often a very winning approach. The last thing I'll say to, about that is that, so often I think what we do as senior leaders is sometimes we can really not empower the middle and the frontline leaders to leading change. So we roll out a change that we want to see, we announce it to everybody, and are we really um, uh, creating, uh, uh, leading, coaching our middle managers, our frontline managers to um, uh, to train people, to um, to reward people, to, you know, I hate the con- the con- concept of holding people accountable, right, because that sounds negative, again, like doing something to people, but are we encouraging people to be accountable to these new behaviors, or are we, in fact, holding our middle frontline managers to the old expectations while expecting our frontline people to behave in new ways, right? And that is something I see as a big disconnect often um, and something that, again, we can, through building relationships and, and, um, and, you know, exploring these different sources of resistance together, that we can, that often makes a big difference in organizations. Barbara, I have two points. One, have you ever refer, have to refer to using drugs when you're employees? <laughs> that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a direct joke. All right, here's, the, here's, here's my real comment. Not every case, not every uh, uh, project that you've worked on has been successful. Um, we, I, I am not even going to ask you that, but I, we all know none of us are 100%. In the situations that you find that the CQ uh, approach uh, doesn't work, what is the major stumbling block that you find with a either a group, an individual? Because sometimes all it takes is one individual to spoil the barrel. So 
what did you what do you find on the negative side as to what would actually make your methodology not work? Great question. Um, and, you know, and first of all, we do know, well, uh, I, I have been told many times that, wow, what did you do that a person? They really drank the Kool-Aid. <laughs> well, that might count as a drug. I'm not sure. <laughs> I try to save that sort of thing for quitting time. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> um uh, no, that's a great question. And, and, of course, as we know, industry-wide, there's statistics that suggest that 70% of major organizational changes fail, which is a shocking statistic. And the scariest part of that statistic is that there was some research done by John Cotter, K-O-T-T-E-R, from Harvard back in the mid-'80s when I first started in the field. And then about five years ago when I was writing my book, Change Intelligence, and, and creating the Change Intelligence Assessment, um, that in, you know, individual leaders and teams could take to, again, you know, diagnose and develop their CQ. Um, McKinsey and Consulting, the global consulting firm, did a similar study and came out with a similar statistics that 70% or more of major changes fail. So that is, of course, there's many layers to that onion. But what almost all the research shows and definitely what I've seen in my career about the major failure factor is, is senior leadership commitment. It's senior leadership commitment. It's that... Um, again, as I, as I say, so often the senior leaders are the most bought into the need for the change, they're most committed to it. However, um, another thing that we see a lot is that they can take their eye off the prize, right? They can make a pronouncement, they can say this is the direction that we need to go, and then move on to other things, right? Um, again, because that's their job, right? The vision, the strategy, looking forward, um, and a lot of times not do what it takes to really um, effectively design and implement and sustain the change. Um, in my database, I have um, you know several thousand leaders at all levels that have taken the CQ assessment. It's only 20 questions to take it online, and it results in um, scores about how we lead. You know, what percentages do we lead from the head, focusing on the vision and the strategy, the heart, focusing on the people. Um, and the hands focusing on the process. And by far and away, um, the least uh, prevalent style in leading change is leading from the hands, is folks who really have on their radar screen um, implementing and sustaining the changes and really, as I say, making it real in the field. And that's, I think, what so often we can downplay and undervalue in organizations is how hard it is and how much time it takes to really implement and sustain change. And so that's one thing that sometimes senior leaders can, so often I hear their frustration in terms of why don't they get it? Why don't they see the gold in what I'm trying to give them and what we're trying to do here? Why don't they get it? And so often, as I say, what can we control? We can only control ourselves, right? And so what developing your change intelligence helps you do is when you feel like you're looking at others, right, and saying, you know, why aren't you getting it? It's an opportunity to turn the mirror back on ourselves, look at our style of leading change. What's our behaviors? What are we doing? What are we neglecting to do? Because that's all we can control. And so often with senior leaders, it is that are we really, we, we've talked about it, right, um, but have we really customized the message? Have we really shown people what's in it for them? Have we really engaged their head, their heart, and enabled their hands, right, um, to be able to make the change? So bottom line, 
that's you know I know that so often it can be frustrating because you're you, you're looking at that sales guy you're looking at that you know um, really important uh, you know frontline manager or or whatever um, and that's my barrier and though you know we can't control them unless we fire them right. So it's the opportunity to say, what can we do differently um, as leaders, as, you know, a, a guiding coalition um, moving forward with this change that we can really help engage and equip and our power, our people to, to, uh, to move forward with us. So the second golden nugget of our uh, segment of the show is, and I hate to say it because I am a leader of the company, 70% of failure is because of, leadership not following through to the total end game is that well i would say that 70 percent of the research shows that 70 percent or more major organizational changes fail fail and the biggest root cause of that i wouldn't say that 100 percent of those failures are due to senior leadership but right. of the ones that fail or succeed right or succeed the biggest success and failure factor is senior leadership commitment um, as evidenced by, again, um, how they're leading the change, how involved they are in the change, how much they've equipped and empowered the organization. So the biggest success or failure factor in change is senior leadership. Uh, that, that is worth gold, and I, I hope that our uh, listeners uh, really absorb that and understand that it, it may not be the people, it may be you. So uh, I, and, I, and, I and and what I, I don't want to interrupt you, but just and, and what to me that is an empowering message. It should be for the people on absolutely. the call because right because what can we control only ourselves and right. beyond that as a leader. If you look at what your people are dealing with, so often what they're dealing with is systemic issues that you can change because you're the leader, right? So to right. me that is if we can just shift our mindset from. You know, again, I have to overcome resistance in them to I have to look at what can I do differently as a leader and how can I improve our systems, right, and our processes and our, you know, our, uh, on a lot of different levels that so people can be on the same page with me and move forward. To me, that's a very empowering message. Oh, empowering. It's a golden nugget. Uh, Tim, would you like to join in us uh, in with this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Barbara, you mentioned, made a, just a quick comment, and I would like you to expand on it a bit. And the quick comment was, if you put a good person up against a bad system, the system wins every time. Could you explain yeah. that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, you know, again, so often what I say is that looks like resistance is that people don't, um, uh, they might want it, they might get it, but they just can't do it, right? And so, so often I've seen that, you know, time and time again where we've asked people to, um, you know, either, um, uh, uh, you, 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 for example, you asked about my failures, right? Well, one of my early uh, failed projects was that um, an organization brought me in um, to help them, uh, you know, create a system for employee involvement. Now we would call it engagement back in the day in employee involvement. So they really wanted people to get more involved in, you know, everything from, um, uh, you know, uh, it was total quality to just, you know, day-to-day um, -day decision making and this sort of thing, right? And so, um, uh, you know, we were going down this path of designing this, uh, you know, employee involvement program for it was the steel mill folks on the front line and, um, and uh, you know, working with a team of high potentials to do this. 
got to the point of implementation, and here we were attempting to teach people total quality management, statistical process control, and realized that people lack basic math skills, right? And there was no system in place to give them, you know, to share some of the data and the information with them. There was no, um, it was, uh, they, um, in, uh, we, we had some plans to bring people together for periodic, you know, again, problem-solving meetings. And there was, uh, but yet their, their, their compensation system was all about, um, again, you know, of course, you know, productivity and time in the line. So the foremen were resisting um, freeing people up and backfilling them because they would be, um, their metrics would falter then. So, that, so in other words, we we're trying to move forward with this change that, um, again, was, was a good thing, right? Get people more involved in decision making, empower them, give them access to more information. But it was it was we were prevented from doing that because of the different systems in place that were impinging on this program. Does that make sense? So so oftentimes, so when you come to you know you look at the sales team, right? You know, again, you might be asking them to um, you know move from a um, uh, you know, a more transactional type of relationships with their clients to a more, you know, relationship aspect, and yet what are we rewarding them for? So that's what I mean, that so often we're asking people to do something differently, um, but we really haven't given them the training, the tools, and there's things that either in the communication, the operations, the uh, manufacturing process, whatever, that are, um, again, encouraging them or even um, uh, uh, causing them by necessity just to get their jobs done to do things in the old way. Uh, Barbara, uh, I'm going to go off that topic a little bit. Uh, being a leader, management, or boss, which I rarely use that term because I like to think that I'm one of the team, uh, as that leader or management, there are times that one suffers from frustration and stress as a result in trying to change and alter the uh, the rest of the team. Are there any simple approaches so that the leadership doesn't uh, get over frustrated and over stressed and perhaps even wind up walking away from it because he can't handle it anymore? Do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, and that's that's the bottom line of why I developed change intelligence was to, um, you know, to help leaders be, you know, feel more and be more confident and competent when it came to leading change and less less stressed and frustrated. Um, so as I, you know, and, and what is change intelligence is the awareness of our style of leading change and the ability to adapt our style to be more effective, right? So it's not about changing ourselves um, any more than we can force change on others. It's really about adapting our behavior. It's about adapting our behavior. Um, and so, um, uh, so, so really what I say is that, um, uh, you know, when you're leading change, you really need to put your own oxygen mask on first. <laughs> you need to put your own <laughs> oxygen mask on first. That, um, that, you know, so often what the frustration is is that we are looking outside and we're attempting to, again, um, uh, sometimes it can feel like, you know, force change on others. And just to sit back, to breathe, right, and to get in that reflective mode, which, again, I'm the same way. You can hear how fast I talk, how fast I move, I right? I didn't notice. I'm very action-oriented. <laughs> action <laughs> and so much of us in manufacturing are. That's why we get paid the big bucks, right? You know, we're problem solvers. We're out there taking action, doing things. Sometimes we do need to sit back, right, and we need to reflect. Because what we also know from neuroscience research is that um, when we're under stress, 
and change equals pain, remember, right? Change equals pain. And when we feel pain, whether we um, are conscious of it or not, right, um, we get all those stress reactions that go in our body. Cortisol reduces, you know, increases, right? We're just, we get under stress. And what happens is that all the good stuff in our brain, the oxygen, the glucose, right, the, the, the fuel of our brain goes out of our brain. It goes below our neck to get into that fight, flight, freeze mode, right? We want to fight, right? We want to flight, just run away, as you say, or we just want to freeze. We're just, you know, what do we do? We've tried everything. We don't have, we don't have a go-forward plan. And so what we need to do then when we feel like we're getting in that mode, right, um, is take a breath. Because when we're in that stress reaction mode, what we're doing is we're doing the same things over and over again. We're losing our problem-solving ability. We're losing our creative ability. And we're, we're doing the same thing. We're going to our, our, our dominant responses, our knee-jerk responses, right? We're getting kind of almost emotionally hijacked by our own brains. And so, therefore, we do more and more of what we've always done, and that's the definition of insanity, right? It's already not working. They're already not getting it, or they're already not doing it, right? They already don't want it, and we're just making them more frustrated than ourselves. So the opportunity is to then, again, sit back and remember that even though we have our dominant leadership style, right, or, you know, or, or our knee-jerk reaction, the, the kind of things that we do that usually makes us successful, right, we also have other tools in our tool bag. We also have other behavioral options available to us, right? We can, we can choose to do something differently. And if we take that kind of reflective time, right, and we really analyze what have I done so far, what's the reaction that it's had, what are other options available to me, and it could be with the same individuals, it could be different conversations with different individuals, it could be looking at the system, it could be looking at the training, it could be looking at, hey, I don't have to do this all by myself, are there other, you know, no man is an island, is there other, you know, folks that I can partner with on this, just to recognize that we have different options, because as I say, the more options you have, the more power you have, the more options you have, the more power you have, and leaders, teams, and organizations that build their change intelligence recognize that they have a lot more options. They have a lot more tools in their tool bag than they might, um, than they might um, normally recognize. And they can select from those, they can use those, and that can, again, potentially result in a lot less stress and frustration for them as well as for those that they're leading. Uh, Barbara, before Tim grabs the mic and takes the show away <laughs> from me, which I'm not always as chatty as I am today, but uh, I, I do want to get a point across before we end this segment. And that is that I would recommend to our listeners, whether they are employees or executives or managers, that you need to play this show for, for your team or for your employees to listen to Barbara's insight. And I do want to to make a point also that uh, Barbara has written a a best-selling book, Change Intelligence, the the Use the Power of CQ to Lead Change That Sticks. Uh, I highly recommend that you either read the book, play the show, uh, and maybe that will also help your project along to come to a successful uh, end. Uh, Timmy? 
Barbara, I think we could talk to you all day on this one. This has been a terrific subject, and we're probably going to reach back to you to do a second show because uh, we don't want to have a show so long that people get lost in the content, which has been really excellent. But thank you for being with us on the on uh, Manufacturing Talk Radio. And, and by the way, your URL is changecatalysts.com. Is that correct? That's correct. And people can also go there and download two free chapters in my book if they want to test drive it. Now uh, you okay. tell me. <laughs> <laughs> by, the, by the way, the, the book is also on uh, Amazon.com for you Amazon shoppers. So that's another place you can find it, and I think Lou and I are going to have to grab a copy of it because this has been terrific information. Thanks for being with us, Barbara. Thanks so much for having me. Barbara, thank you very much. It was very insightful. Appreciate it. I do, too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. And we've been speaking with Barbara Troutline, who is uh, a, a rather brilliant individual on change and change management and effectuating change. We really enjoy the conversation here on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can find this segment at mfgtalkradio.com, and thanks for listening. Okay, great show, Tim. Really thrilling to hear uh, Barbara's uh, philosophy on uh, changing uh changing how to change and leadership strategy and so on. Uh, she's got a book out. I don't have her, the name of the book in front of me. I know you do. So uh, you can, uh, you know, bow, bow the sword when uh, I flip back to you. Uh, next week we have Chad Murray, uh, Moutre, sorry, uh, the chief economist from National Association of Manufacturing, giving his monthly report. Roy Slow uh, from the UK and France uh, doing the same, giving the report on what's going on in Europe, which sounds to be doing pretty well. Chung Wang reporting from China. Uh, We'll uh, see what's happening then. We don't have that information available yet. Uh, Robert Orr from Strategis is going to give his PMI Global report on 18 nations around the world. And uh, uh, Norbert Orr's reports are usually usually filled with lots of very valuable information, particularly if you are a manufacturing exporter, uh, you will want to hear this show. So, Tim, back to you. Great information coming up next week. The book that Lou referred to that Barbara Troutline wrote is called Change Intelligence. And as you heard in that interview, Change equals pain in the human brain. I find that absolutely fascinating. So get a copy of her book and really delve into it. Also, you can listen to any of our shows on mfgtalkradio.com, where we have a complete library of every show we've ever done. And we hope that you'll tune in there also for news articles that we post on a daily basis. Some of you are following us on Twitter and Facebook. Keep that up. We enjoy getting information out to the manufacturing industry. And thank you for listening once again to Manufacturing Talk Thanks Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.